0: Good morning church. If I haven't met you before, my name is Michael, one of the pastors here. Um, That's enough about me though. All right. Revelation chapter 21. All right. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be that whole chapter. And then the first five verses of chapter 22, we are bringing our series in Revelation to a close. So we have this week and then next week is our last week in Revelation. Um, I hope this whole sermon series walking through the book of Revelation has been a blessing to you because if it hasn't been a blessing to you, then we haven't preached it accurately, all right, because the whole purpose of this book is to be a blessing to local churches. Now, a lot of you may have first encountered Revelation, been kind of scared of it, fearful of it, like this is weird, Um, but the goal was to be a blessing when John wrote down this vision that he had received from God. He wrote this down to be an encouragement to seven specific local churches. But those churches represented all local churches for all time, and it's meant to be a blessing to us. They weren't confused by all the imagery in it. Uh, They knew what that meant, and they knew uh, what God was trying to tell them. Now, why did they need to be blessed and encouraged in the midst of this? Because they were going through intense persecution. Their lives were at stake. Their family members' lives were on the line because of their faith in Jesus. So what John is trying to do, God through John, he's trying to say, Hey, here's a vision of what's to come. Once you grasp this vision, let it be motivation for you in this life here and now. Now, why is it, though, that oftentimes our vision of what's to come Fell to motivate us in this life. When we're tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to give in or maybe just give up and quit, why does our vision of the future, vision of what's to come, fail to motivate us to do the right thing, to not compromise? Well, I think because we have a, a vision of what's to come that's very far removed from the biblical vision that God has for us. Like when you think about life after death, when you think about what's to come, a lot of people, and maybe you just learn this from cartoons or something, you think like, okay, when life kind of ends, we're just going to float around this like ethereal abstract place. We're going to float around. We're going to sit on clouds. We're going to play a harp next to little angels that have diapers on, you know, like that's not very motivating when you're tempted to compromise, right? Like, oh man, my job is on the line because of my faith. Let me remember that harp on the cloud, right? That doesn't work. Like it doesn't last. When you're at school and you feel like you're the only one making godly decisions and you're tempted like, man, this would just be easier if I didn't follow Jesus and I just followed the ways of this world. If we have this vision of the future, we're just kind of floating around Man, we're gonna miss it. It's not going to be the motivation that God desires for us. And some of you are going, wait, that's not what life's about. No, we're going to get into Revelation 21 where we're going to see the truth of what comes in the end. All right. So the big question for us this morning is what would make a vision of the future more compelling in this life? What would make a vision of the future more compelling in this life? Let's start. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more now for some of you like oh that seems familiar because that's what we're memorizing right now as a church if you're going through our bible reading plan and trying to memorize verses alongside with us we're memorizing verses one through four right now so that's why it may seem familiar to you But some of you are like, "Uh, that doesn't seem familiar at all. Maybe you should join with us, all right? Um, But it says then. So what happened before this, right? So there was this kind of cosmic destruction, and then there's this judgment that Ian talked about last week. And this judgment comes for everybody, but for those of us that are covered with the Lamb's blood. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Man, the judgment, like he took on our judgment, right? He took on the wrath of God. It's a, it's a beautiful thing when we stand before God and don't say, like, I did this, I did this. You just say, Jesus, he did it all when I could do nothing. And so there's this kind of destruction of what we know. Then there's this judgment. And now what we find this week is there's going to be a new creation that comes. A, a new world, the first heaven and the first earth passes away. Now, what was that? In Genesis 1, 1, the very first verse of the entire Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right? And it was great. It was perfect. God created the heavens and the earth, and it was awesome. But only a couple chapters later, we know Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. Sin enters the world, and there's consequences for sin. Con- One of the consequences, the main consequence, is that Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. It was so beautiful. Not that they missed the Garden, but before this, they walked in the Garden with God. And it was good. They communed with God. They had this intimate relationship with their Creator, God. And then they're cast out of the Garden. And they're Angels blocking access to the tree of life. No access to life anymore because of sin. Separation from God. Not a great thing, right? And since this time, creation has been groaning to be renewed and restored. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. in New heavens and new earth. For the creation wakes with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That creation, right, would be free. It would be set free. Like since sin is entered the world, even creation has been groaning, longing, please God, redeem this. Because Revelation 21 is the redemption. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. God is redeeming new heaven, new earth. And when we talk about this, we're talking about a literal place. We're not talking about like just floating on clouds. We're talking about a transformed, renewed heaven and earth that will be identifiable to you, but it will be far better. It will be perfected. So we're not just floating around in heaven. We're going to recognize the things of this earth. They're just all going to be perfect. Corruption will not exist anymore. We're free from that bondage. Corruption is free from that bondage. Heaven isn't just this floaty place. It's not just this state of mind that we find ourselves in. There's a country song right now that says, They say heaven is somewhere on the other side, but I ain't waiting. Bleep! I can't say that as a preacher. I'm thinking it's a state of mind, all right? They say heaven is somewhere on the other side, but I ain't waiting. I'm thinking it's a state of mind. Guys, that's not true. We're talking about a literal, physical, transformed, renewed place. Not ethereal, abstract place, but a real place. And it says, "And the sea is no more." Now, some of you loved it up until that point because you loved to fish, right? You loved to, you know, sail on your boat. I don't think what he's talking about here is literally getting rid of all bodies of water. This is why I think that all throughout Revelation, what you have is each time that the sea is referred to, it's not a good thing. We're not going to read all these, but in Revelation 13, it's where the origin of the beast is, where the, the origin of evil. In 17, the sea is where the pagan and rebellious nations dwell. In chapter 18, it's the center for idolatrous trade. In chapter 20, it's the place of the dead. Oftentimes throughout Scripture, when the sea is referred to, it's referred to evil, to chaos. Some of you remember the story when Jesus' disciples, they were in a boat and Jesus was asleep at the bottom of the boat and this massive storm comes up on the sea and what's, they're scared to death. Jesus, why are you not awake? Why can, Are you not going to help us? But Jesus is super calm because he understands it. But they're, they're mortified. The sea's a treacherous place. A mysterious place. So when the sea is no more, we're talking about An end to evil. We're talking about an end to chaos, an end to confusion. That's, That's a great place to be, right? No more chaos at home. No more chaos at your workplace. No more chaos in relationships. Evil, corruption, chaos is no more this vision that John is painting for this early persecuted church is that it's void of evil and chaos and darkness and corruption and opposition. But it doesn't stop there. Let's look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So New Jerusalem, this holy city, is coming down out of heaven. Again, it's not us floating up trying to get to God. God is bringing this holy city to us. So as he does, we see that it's a place, but it's more than just a place because it says it's a prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Throughout Revelation, throughout the New Testament, what is the bride? It's the church, it's the redeemed people of God. So when we talk about the holy city New Jerusalem, we're not just talking about a place, we're talking about a redeemed people. A redeemed people. And in 2 Peter, this is what Peter writes about this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When we wait for this new heaven and new earth, we're waiting for a place where righteousness dwells. Not unrighteousness. Righteousness. Now, what makes us right before God? Our works? No. What makes us right is Christ. His works. On the Christ on the cross, he took on our, righteousness, or our unrighteousness and we receive his righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel, that we can be reconciled back to God. When we've been separated from God, we can be reconciled back to him because of Jesus. And in this new heaven and new earth, this is a place where righteousness will dwell. It's incredible. It's a place where Our position, our standing before God, one day will match our condition. Right now, our position before God is we're right before God if we're covered with Christ's sacrifice. We're right before God. But we still have to live in this broken world, right? And it's this big theological term, glorification, that one day our position before God will actually match our condition. That's what happens in the new heavens and new earth. This is wonderful news. Wonderful news. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of God is with man. Perfected intimacy and communion with God. That's what. The new heavens and new earth are all about. Again, Genesis 1, it's a beautiful creation in Eden. Genesis 3, we're separated from God. Because of Jesus, though, we're reconciled back to Him. He brings us back to dwell with God forever. There's no more distance between us and God, there's no more separation, there's no more loneliness in the new heaven and new earth. And who's going to be there? says, and they will be his people. You may have a footnote that says peoples. Because in the new heaven and the new earth, we're not talking about one single ethnicity. We're talking about multiple ethnicities. Revelation 5, Revelation 7 would say, there's people from every language and tribe. About multiple ethnicities coming together in the new heaven and new earth. Not just one. All praising God. Then verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In the new heavens and the new earth, church, there will be no more painful, sorrowful tears. None. Will there be tears of joy and amazement? Maybe. But none caused by pain anymore. None caused by loss. None caused by persecution. Because God will wipe away every tear. Some of you, you just try to hold it together all the time because your world's falling apart and you're mourning. And you're grieving the loss of so many different types of things. God's going to wipe away all those tears. No more weeping. And death shall be no more. One pastor summarized this by saying this No more death, <clears throat> not of husbands, wives, aunts, uncles, children, brothers, sisters, grandfathers, grandmothers cousins, friends, neighbors. Funeral homes will be put out of business. Cemeteries will be empty for all will have been raised in glorified bodies that are no longer susceptible to disease and decay. Never again the long meetings at the funeral home, deciding on caskets and vaults and limos and flowers. No graveside services, no obituaries to read, no video tributes of a person's life, no eulogies, no flowers to be sent or cards or condolences to be written. Never again a long caravan caravan of cars with their headlights on. No police escorts to the cemetery no headstones or awkward moments when you don't know what to say death will be no more death will be no more Like none no death at all this is in the new heavens and the new earth it's incredible there's also no physical pain we get new bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're not going to read it, but in 1 Corinthians 15, we hear all about the resurrection and that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So when Jesus rose from the dead, one day we will get new glorified bodies. Can I get an amen? No more pain. No more disabilities. No more deformities. No more temporary scrapes and cuts and bruises. No band-aids needed. No urgent care. No doctor's offices. No hospitals. No chronic pain. Pain will be no more. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. God will transform our lowly bodies into a glorious body. What is a glorious body? We can look to get a brief glimpse after, at Jesus after his resurrection. You know what Jesus did after his resurrection? He still ate with his disciples. He cooked them breakfast on the shore. We're still going to do those things. Jesus also, like, the room was packed out, couldn't get in the room, and Jesus just appears. I don't know what that means for our resurrected bodies, but it's good, whatever it is, right? There's something good about having a glorious resurrected body where no pain exists anymore, church. No pain. And it's not just physical pain. There's no more emotional wounds from the wayward child. No more emotional wounds from the marital strife. No more emotional pain from the relational conflict. In the new heavens and new earth, there is no pain. For the former things have passed away. The things that cause all those things, the disappointments, the regret, the shame, the guilt, they're gone. They're gone. How encouraging is that to a group of persecuted churches that are going through and like they're being inflicted pain because of their faith. They've seen family members die because of their faith, but in the new heavens and new earth, there is no pain. There is no death anymore. Paul says this in second Corinthians four. So we do not lose heart. That's the motivation. We don't quit. We don't give up. Many of you in your lives, you got a lot of grief in your life, and it does not feel light and momentary. But when you compare it to the weight of glory in the new heavens and new earth, there is no comparison. I'm not diminishing the pain and the grief, but I want us to put our hope on the things that are unseen, not on the things of this world. Because there is no comparison when we do that. Moving on to verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Again, these former things have passed away. God's making all things new. There's going to be this transformation. There's going to be this renewal that takes place. And it says to John, Hey, John, I want you to write these things down because they're trustworthy and true. You can believe these things. This is the truth. It's not just Veritas Church saying, here's how to cope with the world. These are true things from a God that knows all. And he said, believe this. You can stake your life on these things because they're true. Verses six through eight. And he said to me, it is done. We've heard that one before, right? When Jesus dies on the cross, he says it's finished. When the the angels were pouring out their wrath, says, it's done when it got to the seventh one. Same thing here. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters... And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God's in this new creation. It's not just no pain, no death, no crying anymore, but we have access to the springs of the water of life. We have access to life. Not only do we have access to life, but we have access to being a part of God's family. We have a godly heritage or inheritance that we receive and who receives it is the one who conquers the one who lasts the one who endures the one who doesn't compromise the one who remains faithful to the end does that mean everybody receives this though not according to verse eight some of you may be looking at that list right now going "Whoa, whoa, whoa it says all liars go there the detestable The sexually immoral. Some of you are sitting there going, "That, that's me." Remember, when you stand before God as judge, is God stacking all your sins up against everybody else, or is He going, "Your sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb"? That's incredible. That yes, we were all liars. We are all idolaters. But we are covered with the blood of the Lamb. God has drawn in and given the gift of faith. And we believe Like we don't have to worry about being thrown somewhere else. But we get to experience the new heavens and the new earth. Now when we get into verse 9 all the way through chapter, or verse 5 of chapter 22, we're going to get a new perspective here. Another, one of those camera angles we've talked about all throughout this, another camera angle, a clearer perspective of this new city, the new Jerusalem, this holy city, all right? So let's start verses 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Again, we're talking about the church here, all right? And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So John is going to get this initial view again, another perspective of the new heavens and new earth, especially, particularly This holy city, New Jerusalem, God's people, the bride of Christ. And what do we see here? We don't have time to go into all the details of all this. But what you see is that the glory of God is radiating through his people. The glory of God is extending to the ends of this city. Like it's not withheld in one location anymore. It's, It's extended within his people. And then verses 15 through 17... And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. What's the idea here? The city is being measured. And this is symbolizing God placing safe boundaries around this city. That God's people, not just remember we're talking about people, God's people are sealed and protected forever. Forever. God is promising his presence and he's promising to protect his people forever. There's no more harm coming. There's no threat of evil any longer. In the new heavens and new earth, no harm, no threats of evil. This is an amazing place. This is an amazing group of people that have been redeemed by God. Then verses 18 through 21. The wall was built of jasper. While the city was pure gold like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprasy, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So not only is this... There's the measurements of the city and this initial view, but now we're talking about what are the materials that make up this city. These are beautiful materials. Beautiful. All reflecting the glory of God's holiness. His purity. Everything is reflecting God. Now, as this original audience reads this, their minds are immediately going to go to Exodus 2. Uh, twenty-eight and thirty-nine. We don't have time to go there, but let me just explain it to you. In Exodus twenty-eight and thirty-nine, what you have is instructions for the high priest, the one who would go on behalf of the people of God into the holy of holies. The, nobody could enter there except one time a, excuse me, except one time a year, and the high priest could go in there. And in Exodus 28 and 39, what you have is descriptions of the garments that he should have. Part of his garments was a chest piece. It was like a cube, all right? Similar to how this city is going to be. On that, it had 12 jewels, 12 stones. And those represented the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. So the priest would always remember, everybody would look at the priest and he would remember, I'm going to God, into God's presence on behalf of the people. That's the picture that the early church is getting here when we see how these jewels make up this city. It's not just about how beautiful it is. It's a reminder of, oh, we have full access to God's presence As the people, redeemed, faithful people of God, we have full access. We look at this and go, oh, this is a beautiful place. And it is. But don't miss the fact that the jewels are saying, hey, this is about God's presence. This is about not what's in the city, but who's in the city. And it's God. His presence is going to extend throughout. In verses 22-27. through 27, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So that's just saying the kings of the earth will bring their praise and honor and glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what do you find inside this holy city? Do you find a temple where you have to go and access God? No. There is no temple. God and the Lamb are the temple. Full access to the presence of God. Full access to the presence of God. Where people from all over the place are bringing in their own cultures, but they're bringing in praise and glory to God. And it says there in verses 25 and 26 that the gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. In the original city of Jerusalem, the gates were left open during the day so anybody could come in and enter. But at night, those gates were closed to prevent intruders from coming in. And it's saying, there's not even going to be a night. We We can see everything because the glory of God is going to shine. And not only is there not going to be night, But we don't even have to shut the gates anymore. There's no need. There's no intruders that are going to get into this place. That's not how this works any longer in the new heavens and new earth. There is great security for God's people. There's great security in this place. And then verses... 1 through 5 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a picture, guys, of the whole reestablishment of the Garden of Eden that was so perfect when God created it, and now it's fully transformed, is fully renewed, it is fully redeemed. That when you look at that in God's, presence with adam and eve is what his people now get to experience for an eternity this is beautiful no more are there angels blocking access to the tree of life full access available so in this new creation guys what do we have we have no chaos no tears no death no pain no mourning it's beautiful it's massive it's safe it's pure and it's full of life My concern is that we long for all those things and we long for a heaven, but we miss God and we don't long for him. The whole point of all this is that God's presence is there. We get to be with God. If you look at this and you are more excited about no tears, no pain and death no more than you are being with God, you've missed it. God is the prize. God is the treasure. When well, we went through our series called Gospel Pathway, that's the first part of the pathway. Do not miss this. God is the prize in life. God is the prize in eternity. Not all these other things. Are they wonderful things? Absolutely. Are they the best and most and the highest priority? No. God is. We want the benefits that heaven offers. And oftentimes we just use God to get those. And when the temptation to compromise comes up in this life, if we have an incomplete vision of the life to come, we will compromise. If our vision of the new earth and new heavens is a vision without God, we will compromise. We're not going to be compelled to continue to be faithful. And guys, guess what? A lot of what we could have in heaven, we could get in Babylon. Babylon was the man-centered world, right? Rome, the man-centered world. America, the man-centered world. You could get a lot of that. You could get a lot of shiny things here in America and miss god you don't want pain you don't want mourning you can escape you can withdraw stay drunk stay high play video games all day look at pornography all day you can escape you can experience so much of what you're longing for in heaven in this earth if you aren't compelled with a vision that includes god Guys, don't pursue a man-centered world and don't pursue a man-centered eternity. You will not last. You won't endure. But if you realize that the center of this new heaven and new earth is God, that He's present with His people, that His glory and His presence extends everywhere in new heaven and new earth, that He protects His people forever, that He gives full access to Himself, man, that's what compels us to continue to be faithful. The glorious thing about the new heavens and new earth is a glorious God. God. it's not just the absence of all the things that we hate in this life your motivation has to be more than that some of you have seen all those old like motivational posters right they say like motivation and they say something you know a little line about motivation and then they show a picture of like a an eagle flying with a sunset in the background over a mountain right Now, if you're going to run a marathon, all right, I don't know anything about this because I would never do it, but if you were, all right, my wife ran a marathon one time, she told me about it, but um, (laughs) if you were to run a marathon and you get to mile like 22, 23, I would have already been dead at that point, but say you get there, all right, you get to mile 22 and 23 and it feels like your legs are going to fall off, you're struggling to breathe, and you're looking for motivation, Are you going, man, I wish somebody would just show me a poster with an eagle flying over a mountain. (laughs) Is that great motivation? No. No, because you don't want to rip that poster up immediately if you saw that at that point in the race, right? There has to be something more compelling than ethereal, abstract, floaty place that we might end up one day. There is a literal new heavens and new earth where we will dwell in the presence of God forever. That's how we do not compromise in this life. That's how we are compelled to remain faithful because of God, the prize that he is. Guys, that's what we're going after. I'd say it this way. Endure the present by having a vision of forever in God's presence endure the present by having a vision of forever in God's presence. A complete vision of the things to come has the highest priority as God and nothing else. Nothing else. That is the most compelling thing. When you're comprom- when you're tempted to compromise in this life, you go, "Oh, this life this life is light and momentary. I'm I get to be with God forever. Forever in his presence. So what do we do with this? How do you like cultivate this vision more regularly? Right? Because if if you're on a sports team and at the beginning of the year they're saying, Hey, we're gonna get to the championship. That's our goal. But the coach never mentions that again, ever again the rest of the year. Like you're not going to be reminded of that and you're not going to think about it. you have to have regular reminders of being in the presence of God and because of the Holy Spirit you can do that. open your Bible hear from him pray like you can be an intimate connection with God now you don't have to wait for eternity you can do that now regularly remind yourself of the presence of God. I've never met anyone that said, man, I regret reading my Bible. I regret praying. i met a lot of people who said, man, I regret making this decision and not spending more time with God. You have to regularly remind yourself of the presence of God because when you do, you go, man, I can't wait until this is forever and not just a handful of minutes every day. But I get to be in God's presence forever. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this quote. He said, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Guys, Let's be a church that aims for heaven. Not because of what it has to offer, but who it has to offer. God Almighty being in His presence forever. That's the kind of church we want to be. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this vision. God, you didn't have to give us this. Thanks for your grace that you would give us this vision. God, may we never be motivated by anything less than you and you alone. Help us to remember this vision over and over and spend time in your presence. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.